Hello and welcome back to The Big Run and welcome to the first part of a two-part special entitled The Business of Running. Kicking us off today is the CEO of Parkrun. Now, Parkrun started back in 2004 in Bushy Park where Paul Sinton Hewitt and some friends organised his first ever timed 5k run. The premise of Parkrun is simple. Turn up on a Saturday morning at 9am and walk, jog or run 5k and receive a time for your efforts and it's gone on to become a global phenomenon with 3 million members and counting. Our guest today joined the company in 2015 and has been instrumental in growing the company into a sustainable force for good. Ladies and gentlemen, I am delighted to welcome Nick Pearson. So thank you so much for coming on The Big Run and, and being a guest. Really, really quite honoured actually to, to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Um, and I'll get to I'll get to Park Run um, a little bit later on, but I'd love to start with your background a little bit. Um, because prior to, to Park Run, you, you left university, it was a sports science degree you had, and then you started working with Sweatshop, right? And you were, you were fairly low down in the company to begin with and then kind of rose quite rapidly. Is that, is that a fair estimation of your sort of your beginnings? Yeah, fairly low down. Yeah, I was definitely the lowest of the low down at, at, uh, at that point. I, just, I finished my degree and I did a couple of years in health and fitness. So, so I finished my degree in the early 90s. And I think I was at that moment in time where there'd been this kind of mushrooming of people um, getting the opportunity to do sports science degrees. But nobody had necessarily really thought through what the uh, career opportunities that came out of that were. And so I finished my degree. Um, I owed quite a lot of money to the bank. I felt under a significant pressure to get working as quickly as I could. So I took a job in health and fitness um, and really, really, really didn't like it. I did it for a couple of years and I just felt it was ridiculously low paid and overqualified. So everybody came in with degree level or extra levels of qualifications you were effectively on minimum wage. We were running, you know, shifts, so 7 a.m. till 4 p.m. one day, and then you'd do, you know, 2 p.m. till 10 or 11 the following day. So it was it was exhausting. Um, there were some rewarding elements of it, but I stuck it out for a couple of years and then just decided I'd, I'd, I'd look for something else. Before I'd started my degree, I'd done a year in a, um, I'd done a gap year, and I'd worked in a specialty running store. I was down in southwest London. I um, was running second claim for Hounslow Athletics Club and Hugh Brasher was a member of Hounslow Athletics Club and he owned at that time Sweatshop, which was about three running stores down here. I think at the point it was probably one in Teddington, one in Reading, one in Woking. So, yeah, I started there in 1994. Um, and I stayed all the way through until the end of 2014, yeah. Just going back to you leaving university, you, you were saying then about there wasn't necessarily a kind of linear path for how you would apply a, a sports science degree in terms of career opportunities. Was it a bit like, I don't know, doing a degree in drama or something like that, where the kind of career prospects weren't that kind of defined then? Do you know what I mean? It, it was, there wasn't like no, a clear linear, linear path. Yeah, it was definitely like that. And, and it was like nobody had thought it through. So there was clearly a demand from an educational point of view for sports related courses, but that, that hadn't really sort of transposed itself into the workplace. There was, you know, and I'm not saying it's, it's, it's necessarily quantumly different now. There wasn't very much in the way of sports development. There wasn't very much in the way of sports business. There wasn't, you know, it was it was very, very uh, traditional employment prospects at that point. And so it was a bit of a puzzle when you got to the end of it. And the vast majority of people would probably go into teaching or really classic educational routes out of it. So they'd use that, then go on to do a PGCE and work in that, that sort of element. And I think if I look back on, um, on my peers you know if anybody stayed in sport and I don't think many did but if anybody stayed in sport it was through teaching and education. So do you think then your kind of truer education was was working with Sweatshop and, and kind of progressing through that? Do you feel like that's where you started to learn how you would apply the knowledge you'd acquired and kind of how you were kind of figuring out your path through progressing through that company? For me university or, the, or that degree process was a 
was an, um, an an education in life skills and independence you know not one I, I necessarily passed with flying colors but that's what it was it wasn't necessarily a um, gathering of information that I was going to use at any point later on um, in my career or life I think um, and, and 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 I do think that that first part is is critical you know my son's now 19. I've been encouraging him to go to university. He's sort of slightly turned off the educational process through uh, GCSEs, et cetera. Um, and I'm trying to explain to him that's that's not what it's about. It's about, you know, this independence, this development, this maturity, all of the things that come with it. And so it was a really, really, really important part of my life and development. But I don't think from an information gathering process, it particularly was. So yeah, I, I I feel in terms of my career development, yeah, absolutely, that started. I, I would say it started at Switch. I mean, it, was, it started before that. You know, that, that I, I was in and around people that almost from day one that that you were able to learn uh, professional or business skills from. And I think you know each one of those individuals that I spent some time with, I was able to to pick some things up from um, and and kind of learn and develop along the way. Because it felt like with with sweatshop, and I remember shopping in sweatshop. There felt like there was a a trickle down of kind of practices and, and information from an elite level to a consumer level. Because I remember going into the the sweatshop that was just off uh, Oxford Street in London and getting insoles molded for yeah. my feet, and thinking how incredibly high tech and kind of cutting edge that sensation felt like. And thinking like, oh, okay, yeah, like it, it kind of gives you, it kind of, it kind of emboldened you to feel like, yeah, I'm going to get my extra kind of marginal gains with this. And it did actually, it did actually help with various niggles that I had. And it felt like there was a, a, a shift in that kind of retail experience where the, the consumers were being engaged at a level, not just as, as customers, but also respected as, as athletes who were training towards uh, a specific goal was was that something that you were were involved in in kind of renegotiating what that customer experience was yeah definitely we were I, I i think the bit that you're talking about there though probably is rooted in the right at the beginning of the sweatshop experience the fact that um, it was founded by Chris Brasher. Chris Brasher was an Olympic champion. There, there was a sense it, it was, as are so many specialist stores, it was it was staffed by runners that really understood running and 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 kind of as you grow and expand, trying to maintain that becomes quite difficult. And and but also trying to make sure that there's a exactly as you said there a, a sort of humility and respect that sits across top level elite uh, athletes and everybody else you know it's got to be relatable and if it's not relatable then effectively you, you 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 just become this kind of elitist establishment that 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 really is very very niche and can't um operate across the marketplace i think we we definitely went through a process of resetting the culture and we embodied that in this organizational purpose which was helping people be the best that they could be mm. and that was represented across all people that interacted with sweatshop as an organization whether that was customers whether it was staff whether it was uh, suppliers it was a, a a philosophy which was really about you know invest in people and if you invest in people and care about people, then you'll get really, really um, positive outcomes. And it, it came from this view that retail was a really competitive marketplace. And if we, if we wanted to win the battle against, you know, big, you know, box retailers that could buy things cheaper and could employ fewer staff on lower prices and, and have all of those competitive advantages we need to win in one specific place and that that people focus was going to be the area that we that we won at whether that be service whether that be staff engagement all of those things we, we just wanted to be the best at and and absolutely we prided ourselves on trying to create the best customer focused retail experience that you could get across all retail not just in sport but across all retail so you know you were you have to be 
entirely respected and your journey treated with total empathy when you walk in through that front door and celebrated you know it's it's that part one philosophy sits a little bit in that uh, sweatshop philosophy which is you know your journey whatever that journey is whether that journey is from being able to walk for two minutes to being able to walk for 20 minutes or whether your journey is from 18 minutes for 5k to 13 minutes for 5k that that journey if it's progressive should be celebrated or or even if it's not progressive the the attempt to go on that journey should be celebrated and um and i think that's sat within the the basis of the culture that we try to work on and it does listening to you it does there seems to be a lot of parallels with with parkrun there that kind of that lack of hierarchy and that kind of democratic kind of feel to to parkrun i think which has has been one of the factors kind of key to its success and i'll come to that and just just going back to that kind of retail experience and putting it in a kind of 2020 slash 2021 context i think a lot of people particularly runners will be missing that kind of uh, tactile experience of going into a store and and trying on shoes and feeling them out because that experience has kind of been robbed and you kind of have to just buy them now and, and and hope for the best or hope for a company with a really good returns policy do you think there will be a return to that kind of that shopping experience post kind of covid or do you think now that the the rise of like that online kind of shopping experience will kind of mean that they that running stores or maybe more independent running stores are going to slowly be eradicated there will always be a role for bricks and mortar retail the challenge is going to be how you make your how you make your financial or your economic model work in the environment that that's left and and quite frankly as we sit here now i don't think any of us understand what environment is going to be left at the end of this and 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 what those challenges are what i've definitely seen since we came out of round one of lockdown and i've spoken to independent retailers is they saw a surge back and and i think that there will be an initial surge back ultimately it will come down to the economic conditions and the skill of the individual retailers in being able to to hone their model and their costs towards uh, the environment that they operate in and the support that they get from the manufacturers in terms of being able to collaborate to to protect that to, to protect that channel and you can see that there's a whole heap of retail uh, wholesalers manufacturers that want to do that and there are others that are moving much more towards owning and managing their own channel and cutting everybody else out of it and how that plays out will also be part of the factors that impact it i think i think from a consumer level i think within the running community there is a i think there will be and i hope there will be a fierce loyalty to the to the independent um running shops because it is it is such a i mean to boil it down it's a great day out you know going to the running store choosing out your new shoes like there's a real kind of a rich experience to be to be had there i think and i I, i'm hopeful that the kind of support within the running community will help that but i obviously understand there are larger factors at play in an environment that's constantly changing and evolving with goalposts that seem to be being moved every day let alone every every month so in terms of, of you, you stayed in, in, in Sweatshop for, for quite some time, but then where was that moment where you where you stepped off that train and moved over to, to Parkrun? Was there, a, was there a specific thing that motivated that switch for you? Yeah, there was an ownership change at Sweatshop. And so that became a, an interesting sort of ideological challenge about how you deliver retail. So we had had... investment and support from sports direct for a period of time up until that ultimately there was there was an ownership change there were just different views on how you deliver retail and 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 what was important i saw that for a period of time as as a challenge as a not necessarily a negative but an an opportunity to demonstrate that our way was appropriate for our channel and that you know one size didn't fit all in terms of of retail solutions the unfortunate end point in that for me was i got to a point where i didn't think i could control the things that were going on in the retail chain that i was officially responsible for and at that point i felt I just couldn't stand up the decisions that were effectively being represented as coming from me when I didn't necessarily have control over them. So from a values and from an integrity point of view, it just felt 
it, it just felt it wasn't a place I could carry on. So it wasn't um, necessarily a move from sweatshop to park run. It, it was two separate incidents. It was a, a really sad end to my 20 years at, at, at sweatshop. I, I genuinely felt it was the only job I ever wanted to do. I was incredibly proud of what we'd done. I was clearly really passionate about it and really excited about where I thought we could take independent retail over the next five to 10 years. But circumstances sort of conspired against me, I think. So yeah, I left, but without a route or a direction to go next. In actual fact, you know, I went through probably a six month mourning process because I couldn't really consider a new role because I had, I felt I'd lost the only role that I wanted to do. And so I, like I, I really had no appetite to even look for anything else for any period of time. So what was that process then, that, uh, going through that six-month kind of mourning process into finding something that did stare you or move you in a way in the same way that your time at, at Sweatshop had moved you? When, when was it that that penny dropped and you found that channel that was that inspired the same feeling in you? So, so the process was um, was quite painful, really. I think I, um, uh, I think I got very down and just found the um, I, I, I found the the change from being in a really busy day to day environment where your opinion was sought and respected and you were involved in everything to all of a sudden sort of sitting at home where the 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 sort of highlight of the day was you know to make a list shopping list for what you were going to make for dinner in the evening you, you know if you were lucky you would speak to two or three people as a as opposed to your phone going all day every day or that whole sense of self-worth and self-value sort of disappeared but almost without me realizing it so what i realized was i was getting I was quite unhappy and I was getting more and more down, but it sort of took to two or three months down the line that I, that, that I was able to really objectively look at it and identify that I was locked in my house, not really speaking to anybody, kind of feeling a bit sorry for myself. And I was getting myself into a, a negative spiral and I needed to go out and fill the gaps in my well-being and mental health space, and and so I spent some time volunteering to do some um, business support work with with different businesses, and and once I got out, then I was able to start to to sort of open my eyes and um and 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 look outwards again. Paul, the founder of Park Run, had spoken to me almost a day that I left, probably within twenty four hours of, of of that becoming public, and he'd sat down. And said, "Look, I'd love you to come on board in 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 some sort of leadership role. We'd need to flesh that out." So we were so we we were having conversations in the background, but none to begin with that I was particularly motivated to resolve. Ultimately, once I sort of got over myself and stopped feeling sorry for myself and started looking forward again, and we then started having the conversation about what that what that job would look like, whether I would go back into retail, or whether I would do something that that sort of represented the spirit and the values that I'd kind of um, taken with me through Sweatshop. And yeah, in the end, it, it just came down to, you know, a, a number of different job offers and a, and a conversation with Paul where Paul said, you'll get much more, you, you'll, you'll get much more role satisfaction from this. Give us 12 months to see if it works and, and, and then we'll take it from there. And that, that was sort of how it started. You know, it was... At that point in twenty early twenty fifteen, you know, Park Run wasn't it wasn't really an organisation. It was a kind of evolution of a of, of a volunteer group that had you know found some revenue streams to keep it going and help it expand it and help it expand. You know, Paul looking for somebody else really came from this where he'd got a huge amount of anxiety and uncertainty about where the future lay because he couldn't plot it out in his head as to where the money was going to come in, where the money was going to go out and how it could continue to to grow and expand. And his first conversation with me when I said, well, what is it that you want me to do? And he said, stop it falling over. And I said, we're going to have to find something slightly more 
aspirational than stop it falling over if that's going to be a career path. That was the issue that he was trying to address. He was struggling to sleep at night knowing that he'd got, you know, seven or eight people on a payroll and actually no certainty that any money was going to be coming in past the end of the month. You know, there's there's a lot to unpack there with, with that answer, I think. And what's really interesting is this idea of, you know, your uh, your CEO of, of Park Run and you obviously held quite a, a high position in Sweatshop and it's always really refreshing to hear people who work high up in business talk about the kind of emotional toll that's involved in creating something and perhaps seeing something that you've worked so hard change right in front of your eyes and when you hear businesses talk about sometimes their spirit and values it always feels slightly that that's just a bit of copy for for optics but it's it's kind of clear with with you that you know with your experiences with sweatshop that 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 really that hurt like quite a lot like that feels like does that feel like a fair fair estimation i mean it's an underestimation i think it was awful yeah it was it was one of the low points of my life i mean i think you're 100% right though there is there is a position around values and ethos that needs integrity and sincerity to sit alongside it otherwise it's worth absolutely nothing mm. at the same time i think that is the way it's represented by the vast majority of businesses you know it, it's it's a nice graphic that sits on the boardroom wall and actually it's not represented anywhere in, in terms of the actions or behaviors of senior members of staff or you know how many uh, banks or financial institutions will you see you know if you probe that you know integrity and transparency mm-hmm. will sit within their values yet you'll see large-scale fraud or questionable behaviors sitting within the senior management team I think we, we were lucky in that we were small enough to affect it and we were influenced by enough really good people that we brought in to help us and advise us around how you build that culture and value set and make sure it exists sort of every day with every member of staff as as a as an aspiration clearly it's impossible to have it 100% applied 100% of the time but i think absolutely you know in those days at sweatshop you know if you were to pluck anybody from that staff team and ask them what our values were and how they were represented in the way we went around they'd be able to answer that question and 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 similarly we've tried to do that at um a park run you know we talk about this um organizational mission around um making the world healthier and happier and making communities healthier and happier and sometimes we get criticized for over overusing what appears to be quite a quite a glib uh soundbite but the reality is it has to exist every day for everybody in our organization for it to actually have any genuine sincere resonance otherwise it is just that it's just a nice it's just a nice soundbite that sits on the bottom of a corporate presentation Mm. um and it isn't impacting and affecting the decision making of the people that got employed by one so so i think you're right one of those critical things i would say is really understanding what your what your personality is what your essence is what your values what your mission whatever you want to call those you know whatever the the catchword is for that and then making sure that your behaviors are grounded in that set of rules and as leaders that you entirely buy into it that you follow that set of guidelines and you allow yourself to be challenged when inevitably you fall off those standards on occasion and because People can sense when it's genuine, I feel. I think like consumers, participants with, with Park Run or, or whoever it is that you're pitching these values to can really sense when it's genuine or, or when it's just a token bit of copy at the bottom of a of a presentation and that will inspire and it inspire you know, that will inspire loyalty. And I feel with Park Run as a as a as a participant and also as an outsider observing it, that seems to be one of the the cornerstones of, of its success is that that shared value system or shared belief system of, of Parkrun is so genuine with the with the volunteers that are the kind of the foundation of, of making it actually run on a logistical level up to the upper echelon such as yourself it feels so so apparent so let's let's get into Parkrun um so I'm guessing people who are listening to this are probably quite familiar with with what kind of Parkrun is obviously set up by Paul started off with his local running bushy, bushy park and then you joined in was that 20 2015 was that about the time you yeah. joined yeah so, yeah, yeah. The mid, 
May the first, twenty fifteen, I think. And at that stage, where where was Park Run in terms of its kind of footprint at that stage when you joined? It's a good question. Off the top of my head, I think it was probably about sixty to eighty thousand participants a week. Off the top of my head, probably two million registered park runners around the world. And, and the sort of the growth thing is, I, I think the fundamental difference between Park Run now and Park Run then, we now have a proactive direction. So we understand, I think, much more proactively what we're trying to do. So not I'm saying that there's an end point, but we are pursuing something as opposed to facilitating demand, which was largely where it sat in 2015 the other fundamental change i think that that we've been able to develop is is just the organizational structure that sits around around um around park run which now protects its sustainability in the long term clearly we're now wherever we are 12 months through covid and the the huge financial and organizational shock that is that is covid for all organizations and you know we we have managed to come through that first 12 months relatively unscathed i say relatively unscathed you know we've had some real hits to to our revenues and and have had to make adjustments clearly as a result of that but but relatively unscathed if we go back four years and that had happened in 2015, it, it, there, there is absolutely no way that a cent- the central organisation could have coped with, with what's happened in the last 12 months. And so we have been building and preparing, in actual fact, for financial shock, not this financial shock. I don't think anybody mm. expected this financial shock. But we always felt, or I always felt, we had to build a cost and revenue balance that allowed for the protection of its sustainability if things significantly got worse from a financial point of view and and that's i think the major fundamental change you know the chances of it you know if you go back to paul's comment you know stop it falling over probably the chances of it existing in 10 years time at that point were you know probably no more than 50 50 i think you know very much now we would say it's a you know 90, 95%, 99% chance of it being able to carry on, you know, indefinitely. So what were the things that you were doing then to shore it up, prep the barricades or, you know, strengthen the foundations to kind of, obviously you weren't preparing for COVID, but you say you were you were kind of trying to shore up the foundations. What were the things you started to implement? Because, I mean, you talk about growth and, I mean, it it, it has grown, like, you, you know, you've Siberia, you know, you're in like 25 prisons as well at the, the level of, of expansion and the diversity of that expansion in terms of where it's reached is, is, is incredible. Were there things that you were, you say about having an active kind of destination, not an endpoint, but a, a, a target, were there things that you were aiming towards and things that you were implementing to kind of shore up those foundations? Yeah. So, so, so I think there were two main points for me. One when when we go back to 2015 we we effectively had a revenue stream that just about covered the staff costs so we needed a central group of we needed a central team of people to be able to do all of the things that allow for you know wherever we are at the moment two and a half thousand weekly events to to happen you know whether that be deal with the huge amount of incidents that happen every single week, the reviews of those, um, you know, whether that be dealing with the risk assessments, whether that be dealing with the technology that sits behind the uh, the engine that drives it, whether that be through uh, social me- media or digital creation or all of the things that are going on there. We so we we needed a team of people. When we go back, we would what we found was an organisation that was effectively generating just enough money to pay for those staff, which I saw as this inherent weakness. You know, effectively, any financial shock meant that we couldn't pay the staff. If we couldn't pay the staff, there was a vulnerability to the continuation of the organisation. So at that point, we looked at this 100% of overheads being spent on staff costs. We set some objectives in trying to get 
the overheads spent um the, the the cost of staff as a significant reduction in the amount of overheads so you know i think we've probably got it down to about 40 percent now and the rest is spent in investment in the product and the experience and the sustainability and the technology etc cetera, etc cetera. what that's meant over that period of time is that as we've had this financial shock of covid we've been able to cut our overheads without there being any direct or immediate risk to the to the workforce so the workforce can carry on doing all of the things they do and we've been able to cut our overheads by you know 30 or 40% during this pandemic by just stopping some of the uh, progressive investment projects or pausing some of the progressive investment mm. projects that we've got going on. Clearly, to be able to do that, though, we needed to be able to um, uh, generate more revenue. And, and so we set about introducing new revenue streams and putting things in place that were slightly more long term in terms of their fruition date but would help us deliver broader and less vulnerable revenue streams. So at that point, we really only had one revenue stream of any significance, which was coming from sponsorship. And if we had a blow to that, then actually we got nothing else coming in. So we've looked at all of the different areas where, where we could build genuine long-term uh, sustainable revenue, whether that be through retail or donations or through other uh, parts of third parties and put those things in place four or five years ago, which are beginning to make significant impacts now, which gives us a much broader mixed set of risk from a revenue point of view. And at a time like now, where some of those have been hit really, really hard. Others have not been hit at all. And so, so, so our revenue has, has been able to be maintained at a level that we've been able to keep the organisation going. And that, I mean, that's obviously encouraging as well for people listening who are, and a lot of people I've spoken to are really missing Parkrun. Like it's really like a real painful thing that people are genuinely, genuinely missing and, and hungry for it to get back. So it's it's really encouraging to hear that you know from a, a business point of view that it does have that that strength at, at the moment to, to keep it going. You mentioned then as well talking about the the engine and the, the data of the business and the data that you when it was up and, and running at full capacity that you're you're capturing every every Saturday and I'd love to dial into that a little bit because you are like the, the volume of of people engaging with with Parkrun and that data that you're getting week in week out week out from around the world. Have you noticed or have there been particular revelations that have come from that data that you found, whether it be different things um, internationally or at a local level or in terms of people's behaviour? Does that data, is it a, is it a fountain of information for, for you in terms of what you see from it? Yeah, the data is, I, I mean, it's probably one of the most interesting um, data sets around physical activity that, that you'll ever come across. I think it's underestimated where that value sits. So clearly we've got data against the 7 million people that register with us. And that data is quite interesting. You know, we can cut that data at um, all sorts of demographic level, whether that be, you know, where you live, what sort of social environment you come from as a result of where you live, clearly what age you are. We ask what your prior level of physical activity is. So we also know when you come in through that front door, are you totally inactive? Are you, you know, effectively a professional sportsman? And then of course, we've got all of the contacts that you ever have with us from day one recorded so you know for you Danny if you've ran a hundred times and you've got progressively faster we'll know exactly what that is if we'll be able to see if you get faster in the summer and uh, and slower in the winter or we'll be able to see you might have volunteered more times than you've ran we might we, we might see a whole heap of patterns if we choose to look and then of course we also run this really significant and important insight gathering process permanently on top of that. So, so we're running um, a monthly value survey across our main geographies, which are asking park runners how positive their experience is when they get to park run, how inclusive they think it is, how, how much they trust park run as an organization, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Things that effectively at population level will indicate to us whether we're maintaining 
the things that are important to us or we're losing the things that are important to us as we change things and 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 and, and etc cetera, etc cetera. on a similarly regular basis talking to our volunteers so what's your experience like how are you dealing with those elements how does volunteering make you feel what are the bits that are great what are the bits that aren't so great so that again we can factor that into the decision making so so when we are making decisions across our whole um, organization we're factoring in the insight that's coming in all of the time about how people feel what they like what they don't like uh, and where the majority of viewpoints sit which i think is is incredibly valuable and then of course through covid we've been running um effectively temperature checks all the way through uh, uh, country by country about what's the preparedness for that group of people to to want to come back to want to volunteer what their fears are what it is that might be stopping them coming back etc 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 and so there's a lot of there's a lot of really valuable data that we use to make decisions about when is the right time when isn't the right time from a what's within our control have there been takeaways from that data that have surprised you because i read a quote from paul where he was noting that every year as parkrun has progressed that the average finish time has actually slowed down and that was indicating that more and more people who perhaps you know didn't have a good level of fitness were actually willing to try parkrun as as their kind of first foray back into exercise or their their first time with exercise at all have you noticed any other uh, trends or, or things with the data that have surprised you yeah i i i think there's a couple of things that are um interesting so, so so that's a representation of our of probably our single dashboard kpi that we'll use to indicate whether or not we are being successful in achieving our mission so if our so mission just is sorry to butt in there but kpi stupid question alert just for people listening what is a kpi as a, as a key performance indicator and so hmm. so so an, an, an indicator within your business or organization as to whether you're achieving what you're you're hmm. setting out to achieve I, i'm a fan and, and a great believer in trying to really decant all of that information down into the smallest amount of metrics that you possibly can which give you a a top line view as to whether you're succeeding or you're not succeeding. So obviously there's a huge amount of detail that you need to put in place, a a, a clear view quite quickly as to whether you're achieving your goals or you're not achieving your goals. Now, our stated organizational mission, which is to make communities healthier and happier, to make the world a healthier and happier place, is contingent on us encouraging and supporting the least active and the least healthy people into more active and healthier lifestyles through the provision of walking, jogging, running or volunteering on a Saturday or Sunday morning. Our measure of whether we're encouraging more broad participation rather than just sporty participation is is really encapsulated in that that overall finishing time. So, you know, when you're looking at that overall finishing time. If you look at it from a global point of view, that's an accumulation of 20 million finishing time. So it's a pretty it's a pretty good data set that you're talking about. And, you know, clearly when we're looking at it in the UK, you're looking at about 12 or 13 million pre-COVID um, that go into that. And, 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 and as you said, uh, Danny, really accurately, every year since we started, that time's got slower and that time getting slower, the average finishing time is a representation to us that we're broadening broadening our participation uh, profile. We're encouraging people that wouldn't normally do physical activity or wouldn't feel comfortable in that type of environment. That represents our primary measure of whether we're succeeding or not, much more so than whether it's 400,000 people a week or 500,000 people a week. You know, our view very much there is if we just got another 100,000 very, very fit people and made no impact to their health and well-being outcomes as a result of them coming on a Saturday morning. That would have nominal value to us in terms of what we're doing. We'd much rather have 50,000 less people, but more relevant people that were benefiting from it. So so I think that's, that's that particular point. To go back there, I mean, you know, there are some geographical 
um, uh, significant differences. You know, when you look at female participation around the world, it's it's really really different in in different parts of the world. However, what 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 you sort of do see as a as a standard is that female participation is underrepresented against the population and, and, and that has helped us steer some of our gender initiatives around encouraging female participation because it's a, a constant and consistent even though it's very different here to where it is in some places in Eastern Europe but there are still very very similar challenges that we see that we can resolve with sort of single acts of operational change. And it's interesting talking about the the change or operational change that you can have with data, but there's also it feels from an outsider the the other side of that as well as data and and anal- analytics is the kind of the tactile kind of personal experience of actually being at a park run. And what's always struck me, I remember doing it for the first time. I think it was 2013. I think I was working at Stratford upon Avon. Was working there. Went to the park run there. And what struck me is how low key it was. And I mean that in the best possible way. Like it's, it felt much more relaxed and less high stakes than going to an actual race or an actual event. And are those qualities that have organically kind of evolved by the nature of what it is, or are those qualities that you actively look at and and monitor and, and sort of tweak in order to to drive those kind of targets that you're talking about like in, engaging you know more women or or making that gender parity more more equal in terms of the people that are, are going to park run yeah danny i think the answer is both so i think it, it i think it organically evolved because there was a, um a group of of people leading the organization with a set of values that represented those those things so so, you know, Paul's, Paul's spirit and his soul sits at the heart of Park Run and it always has done since day one. Paul has got a moral code and value set like nobody I've ever come across before. He passionately believes that everybody is the same in terms of essence, that each human being is of equal value and, and ranking and creating a hierarchy based on any sort of external element is is intrinsically unfair and so there's a heap of stuff that sort of evolved it organically that came out of those set of fundamental principles and Paul's a, a big personality you know it, it took a, a big personality actually to get it up off the ground and, and, and get it moving even for 13 people in day one at the same time I think what we've understood as a consequence of that and then we've become much more proactive around is that that's a community event for the community delivered by the community and that's where its value is and that's why that's why people really value it that's why people enjoy it that's why people engage with it the sort of philosophy that we're driving at there is if you give communities the tools to solve their own problems they'll be much 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 more motivated to do that whether that be through participation or through volunteering so our volunteer teams are empowered to deliver those events the the rules and the bureaucracy bureaucracy and the framework is really 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 light there's loads of freedom within there um, for them to deliver it and they're trusted to do it there's a minimal amount of checks and as a result they do this amazing job of creating phenomenal experiences and life-changing interventions for people in their community but they've got this incredible sense of ownership and pride of those outcomes because that's what it is. It's a community event delivered by the community for the community. Um, and, and so I think we're much more conscious of that now. And so therefore that insight, you know, OK, well, we've brought in a commercial partner. The commercial partners changed the colour of the bibs. Has that changed the experience and turned it into a corporate one? Or, or has it maintained the sense of community and inclusion it's instinctive and natural and it's not over processed and, and and manufactured and and so that's one of the reasons why we're so keen at measuring and monitoring that that participant and volunteer insight all of the time do you feel then just just listening to you talk about it then do you feel that that is if if people were to quantify what your role is that you're kind of straddling that line of preserving what parkrun is and means to a lot of people whilst also making sure that it is sustainable and growing as a business and making sure that you don't veer 
too far into either direction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I think my job is the really dull one, isn't it? Of taking other people's amazing ideas and, and then just cutting the cutting the stuff out that doesn't matter and making sure that we can focus on, that everybody understands the bit that does matter, that we can focus on the stuff that does matter and that there is a structure in place to allow people to be able to do that. So I, I, I think organisational structure and culture are the bits that really is my my prime job and actually all of the great ideas you know so you talked about prisons prisons is a brilliant example i think of the framework allowing creative brilliance to create that incredible solution so five years ago we were about facilitating demand within a very very rigid system so it's saturday mornings it's 5k it's public space it's available to everybody and if you want one you tell us we'll help you put that event on and then you'll become part of the park run family over the last five years we've created this this purpose and this mission which is about healthier and and, and happier as i've said multiple times all of a sudden a conversation or an inquiry from a prison becomes much more relevant in the context of healthier and happier communities you know if you can get if you can get that population focused on physical activity where there is an overwhelming amount of insight that says that it's it, you know it's really positive for their behavior it massively cuts reoffending rates it gives them purpose and structure and all there's there's a there's a whole host of broader community benefits as well as the health, well-being benefits to, to that group of people. We couldn't have done that prior to 2015. And, and it's not my idea in any way, shape or form. And actually, when the idea was presented, I was on the sceptical side of whether we could deliver it at scale within our framework. But actually, the, the structure in the framework, the boring stuff that I've done has allowed that solution to come from the health and well-being team as a creative solution that, that perhaps couldn't have come before. And I think it is a brilliant thing and the fact that it's happening within prisons as well, because there's multiple stories of, you know, Judge Craig Mitchell out in L.A. working with uh, homeless uh, people on Skid Row. There's a documentary about it and there's there's multiple other judges in America and in the U.K. have done similar things. But to have it within the prison and to kind of be implementing that, the the benefits and the value whilst within the institution i don't know whether you can respond to but the 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 value and the the effect that must have must must be incredible to to the to the inmates have you had stories of of how it's been a kind of success for individuals that have engaged with it yeah we've had, i mean loads and loads of stories of how it's changed people's lives for for the better and 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 effectively taking them from being directionless and 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 helpless and 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 giving them a, a a route out. I mean, there are there are a number of prisons that allow guests in and visitors in to experience it. And in the prisons where they do, the inmates love it absolutely. It makes their week when somebody comes in because they're so proud of what they're doing and they're so proud of their their achievement and and just the concept of them being able to deliver it and being trusted to deliver it and 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 some of the stories that they're, they're, they're so proud of each other in terms of the 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 stories and and the evolution as sort of counterintuitive as it is you know prison park run is probably the most intense version of a community in action i've ever seen at a park run event it's a it's genuinely an overwhelming experience and so you know clearly people have come out they've carried on people have people have their their families have been encouraged to do it you know one of the main reasons we are interested in it in pushing it forward is that that prison population generally at a population level comes from the most deprived areas of the uk population they'll be the most deprived also of physical activity opportunities of of sport etc etc and and actually some of the most difficult areas to go in and 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 support interventions in so for us to be able to go into prisons it, it was an opportunity for us in terms of our broadening participation to reach a group 
that that we might struggle to 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 reach in more conventional uh, terms. And you know, some of those stats, the the percentage of the prison population that have done a part one is is really really huge. And and you know, not only in the UK, it, it's working now in Ireland. We've got um, a significant number of events in Australia, and it's 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 effectively a snowballing as a really 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 effective but easy to implement and low cost physical activity intervention that supports better behavior and all of those things we talked about you know lower uh, reoffending rates um, um, and actually you know forgetting that the development of those people as individuals as well the personal benefit to, to to those to those individuals and you know when you get in there and you see the people that are in there, there are so many, so many that are a victim of circumstance that that, that, that they are in prison because, you know, ultimately the environment that they were born into and the circumstances around them dictated that that was inevitably where they were going to go. And there's very little that they could have done about it. And that actually helping them on an individual level um, in itself is justification itself, I think, for, for the for the initiative. And it's fantastic and just challenging people's beliefs of what, you know, what kind of practices or what kind of um, initiatives can be done within prisons for, for people who, who, who find themselves there, I think, and challenging people's perceptions of what a community based program can do and, you know, the kind of things, the strings to its to its bow. And I feel like looking at Park Run as a phenomenon kind of in, in the wide shot. And I love there was this quote um Jonathan Liu, journalist, I think for The Independent, was saying about how Parkrun has kind of upended what we believe or what our perception of sport is or what we've been told for it to be. You know, as sport kind of evolves and becomes something that's packaged or something that you have to pay to watch or, you know, the the, the sports personalities become celebrities or whatever, there's parkrun which kind of operates outside of that and i feel like it has slightly changed perceptions of what sport can be and what their engagement with it is do you, do you think that's a fair estimation to, to the kind of power and the effect of, of parkrun as a whole it's changed a lot there's no question it's changed a lot it's definitely normalized something that wasn't that normal you know 16 years ago but i specifically remember around around the beginning there was a lot of challenge to pull around Saturday mornings being the wrong day because people don't run on Saturdays. Nobody runs on a Saturday, everybody runs on a Sunday. You know, whether it be the traditional club system where it's a rest day or whatever, or, you know, pe- people have families go and do other things, shopping or whatever. And and, and of course now, 16 years later, you, it, it's actually quite difficult to comprehend people saying, well, you don't run on a Saturday. But, but that was like, you know, a lot of resistance or, you know, it was traditional race day for cross country or whatever. But but it was it was never going to work because it was on a Saturday was 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 part of the pushback. So, look, look it's changed loads. And, and I really, really, really hope what it's changed more than anything is the intimidation factor, the normalization for normal people that you can go and, and do group sport, physical activity and be welcomed and 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 feel like it's your place and and feel you know you're not the guy at the back that's a bit of an embarrassment or or you know you're not being looked at or laughed at or whatever that you are entirely welcome and relevant you know it's about you as much as it is about everybody else so i think so i really 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 hope we've we've gone a long way towards towards changing that what i also hope is that it's the start and 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 that that free community physical activity and sport is where we're at in a generation's time and that that you danny have a choice for you and your family about whether you go to do park run at nine o'clock on a saturday morning or you take your son to community basketball or you take your you know your mum to community pilates all of these things delivered by the community for for the community supporting healthier and active lifestyles and if i was to look at the government's role over the last 10 years of Park Run, my frustration would be there's been very little insight taken from how's Park Run managed to deliver that to, you know, let's take the UK, 5 million people in the UK or 4.5 million people in the UK 
off of 25 members of staff, this incredibly low cost intervention delivered with great experience and reproduction value. You know, it's the same thing everywhere. How they managed to do that at incredibly low cost? And why aren't we trying to replicate those principles and deliver them in other areas of physical activity? Because the simple fact of the matter is 5K, whether it's walking, jogging or running, is at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning is not going to be the solution for every single individual in the UK. But actually, physical activity can be available to every single individual if we just find the right choices and selections for individual preferences and and cultures and and, and all of the different um, factors that affect what it is you're, you're more or less likely to do. That really surprises me, you saying having frustration with possibly lack of engagement from you know senior members of government considering as you describe it there particularly with our our current government you describe it as an incredibly successful business that's had very little in terms of of cost um in terms of what you've managed to to replicate which you know from a government point of view that surely has to be an, an attractive proposition like it really surprises me that there has been that lack of engagement because it feels like like you say like there's so much potential for it to expand beyond running into more kind of community-based programs that can catch more people that would be my aspiration for if if part one was to leave a legacy it would be that it was the legacy that triggered so many other things as opposed to it was the legacy that got five million people active on a saturday morning or 10 million people active on a saturday morning part one has been non-conventional from day one you know, one of the fights we've been through over the last four or five years is to is to force ourselves into the mainstream and be accepted. And we are accepted now and we are, you know, we are appreciated by government and all the government agencies. And we are now supported to some degree by government. And I think that's where their focus has been. Do we support you? Do we not support you? And so the fight over the last 16 years is to be able to do it our way. So that's the first fight. You know, if you're going to if you're going to do something with the support of government or government agencies, very often it means you have to do it in a specific way. And we've resisted that and then managed to have that position accepted and then that position accepted and supported. I think the next part is to say, well, actually, and, and, and in fairness, in our engagement with Sport England, that has been over the last probably 12 months, more of the questions have been around what can we learn from you as opposed to what do we need to tell you doing right or doing wrong. But at the same time, I, I still don't think that there is a, a grasp of the scale of what we're delivering and the value at which we're delivering it. You know, the, the, the leanness of the organisation, the incredibly low cost base against you know uk specifically you know 350,000 people across you know 12 1300 locations every single week doing this really 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 valuable physical activity or volunteering or social interaction or you know um, supportive intervention around their their mental their, their mental health and well-being that that's possibly the next push is getting a broader understanding of how successful the model is as opposed to mm. how successful the intervention is and 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 hopefully that push can begin soon because obviously right now with covid you you're you're slightly limited in how much you can you can do but yet still it does continue like new pbs are being set in the countries that are are allowed quite recently there was a new pb for the for the women's 5k like only what a couple of weeks ago is that right yeah 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 there was the the, the fastest ever time the, the, the fastest ever female time was um was recorded in australia which is which is great. And it's great to see the the interaction with that from the community masses who, you know, who see it as a genuine inspiration and, and, and are able to, you know, I was fascinated by watching the social media interaction, actually, because it's all too easy to say, well, there's the elite and then there's the slower runners. And actually, they're two different groups that just happen to be in the same place. But actually, when you watch... The social media interaction it was fascinating just to see how much pride and positivity there was universally across the announcement and how much inspiration there was being taken by the broad population from somebody that could run that fast yeah you, you know i think that's representative of park, park run becoming a, an established part of you know weekend 
physical activity, running, sport, routine, whatever whatever entry point you want to come in at, whether you're coming in at, you know, one hour and 15 minutes or whether you're coming in at 15 minutes, you know, we're largely back across the whole of Australia. We, we, we suffer a little bit there with the local lockdown strategy coming in at two or three days notice. So, you know, we were invariably locked out of a city or a, or a state at the moment as they deal with COVID with their sort of rapid reaction plan. New Zealand's back. Japan has been back in full. Then it's been partly closed. Um, and, and, and as cases go down again there, that looks like that's starting to return. The reality is, of course, though, that the virtual is never going to replace the value of social interaction. And Park Run is at its essence the opportunity for you to go to your local park on a Saturday morning and meet local people and have that social interaction. We need that back. And the, 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 the nation's health needs that back as soon as we can safely get those type of events back into the, the, the public domain. And I have absolutely no doubt that when it is safe to, to do that, that people will be, for want of a better expression, biting your arm off to get back. There, there really does. So many people I've spoken to on this show and privately, there is a real hunger for it to, to come back and, and long, long may it continue. Just to wrap up nick and thank you so much for your for your time it's been fascinating to learn about how park run runs as a business and your involvement but we ask all of our guests this and i kind of throw it at them at the very last minute don't worry it's nothing nothing it's not a complicated equation or or anything like that but if there was one bit of advice that you've either heard or coined yourself through your career and through your time with with sweatshop and with park run or or just as yourself that you'd want to pass on to people listening be it for for running or for motivation or, or whatever what what would it be i think if i was giving that piece of sort of business advice from my kind of humble successes i i would absolutely be reiterating that point about understanding what you are, who you represent, what what your organisational values um, and mission is. So really creating your identity, having absolute certainty about what your identity is, and then effectively decanting that into the the simplest set of measures to be able to get a quick view of whether you're being successful or not. I think that's a, a brilliant bit of business insight and, and acumen from someone with such incredible experience nick thank you so much for coming on and for being such a brilliant guest on the big run really really appreciate it hey my pleasure danny big thank you to nick for coming on and since recording this interview it has been announced that parkrun will return to the uk on the 5th of june and i can imagine there is a lot of people listening who are very excited about that prospect myself included be sure to listen to the second part of this two-part special where I'm going to be sitting down with Dan Sur of Coros Wearables and finding out how in a relatively short space of time they've become a real disruptor in the field of running tech. It's a fascinating insight into a really, really exciting company. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to be the first to hear when our new episodes are going to be launching. And as always, if you're able to, get out there and get running.